Let's open our Bibles, though, together to Romans chapter 16. We are so close to the finish line of this book. We're close enough now that as I, as I sit down to work each week and I look at what we have left in the book and how much time's left, I feel sad uh, because we've spent so much time in this glorious epistle. We are going to be picking up, though, where we left off last week, and that has us in verse 19 of Romans chapter 16. And so let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. As we hear now Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, this is the word of the Lord. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, and errant word. Lord, we pray by your spirit that you would give us ears to hear your voice this morning, that you would give us receptive hearts. We do, Lord, pray as we do each Lord's day when we gather under the authority of your word that by your spirit you would cause blinded eyes to see and deaf ears to hear, even hearts which are dead and bound in sin to be made to live. Pray for ourselves as your people that you would transform us more into the likeness of our Savior by your Spirit through your word. And I pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you can be seated. Well, last Sunday night was an event that I know all of you set your annual clock by, the Oscars, the annual movie awards, and I saw no video from the Oscars except one video that ended up going viral, and that of a British actor named Hugh Grant, who was clearly annoyed to be there. The clueless interviewer is trying to get this man who wants to pay no attention to her or show any enthusiasm of the event at all to give a good interview, and he is not cooperating in the least. So she says to him, you're a veteran actor. You've been to many Oscars. What's your favorite thing about being here? And Hugh Grant, as he looks around and looks anywhere but at her, stutters and stammers a little bit, and he says this, it's fascinating. The whole of humanity is here. And then he made an interesting reference. He said, it's Vanity Fair. Now he's referring to John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. This book first published in 1678. And this reference was 100% lost on the interviewer. She had no idea that that's what he was talking about. She thought he was talking about the party that happens after the Oscars, which is hosted by the magazine named Vanity Fair. And so Hugh Grant, disgruntled, looking around the room and says, it's Vanity Fair going on here right now. She takes that statement as a very positive statement. Finally, we've gotten somewhere. She goes, oh yes, it's all about Vanity Fair. That's where we let loose and have a little bit of fun. What he was actually doing was making a negative statement. He was unimpressed to be there. He was slyly criticizing the event. This is frivolous. This extravagant event where all the rich and famous have gathered together to celebrate ourselves. 
It's a very strange thing. And so he compares it to this wicked city from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, I hope you're familiar with it. I've said before, have no confidence that you'll be in heaven if you have not read this book. Uh, it's, it's an allegory. It's a, it's a story that's pointing to a much greater truth beyond itself. And, and in this book, I know many of you are familiar with it, a man named Christian is fleeing from his hometown, his hometown named the City of Destruction. And he is fleeing for his life from the city of destruction, traveling towards the celestial city. The celestial city, obviously, is a picture of heaven in this allegory. Along the way, he encounters many difficulties. He gets caught in the slough of despond, and he's briefly imprisoned in Doubting Castle and escapes the giant despair. Along the way, he's, he's attacked and stalked by a horrifying enemy named Apollyon. But in one scene of this book, one memorable scene, Christian and a companion from his hometown that he has met along the way, a man named Faithful, are forced to travel through a city called Vanity Fair. And in Vanity Fair, there is this great, great and ancient festival. It's, it's like the State Fair or the Elkhart County Fair set on 10 and going on continually and never ending. But it's not exactly like the 4-H fair with its animals and elephant ears and all that goes on there. It's a city filled with pleasures and enticements and distractions and temptations. Vanity Fair is a city in this story that represents the world of those who hate God. They hate the celestial city. They hate God and they hate his heaven. Vanity Fair had one purpose for existence. It offered the travelers who came through it anything and everything distracting and sinful that would entice them to forget about God and to forget about their journey to the celestial city. Eventually, Pilgrim's companion, Faithful, is murdered by the citizens of Vanity Fair who are enraged by his indictment of their way of life and by his pure and holy testimony. And after Faithful is martyred, then Christian is finally allowed to leave the city. He eventually travels through many more adventures and trials and finally arrives at the celestial city, his destination. Well, well John, John Bunyan's allegory is full of truth. It really is one of the best things ever written. But the reality is at this very moment, we are all passing through Vanity Fair. It, it is a very dangerous place. Constantly tempting us, relentlessly calling us to believe false promises, to become distracted and, and entangled in momentary pleasures, to take our eyes off of God, to take our eyes off of our pleasure with him, to take our eyes off of that destination to which we are traveling, to which we have fixed our eyes, the celestial city. And so in Romans chapter 16, Paul is, has been giving these final greetings and he interrupts himself. He's been expressing his, his love for these people, his love for the church, his love for, for these particular saints. And he interrupts himself with a series of warnings. Paul is deeply aware of the dangers that we face in this world. And so he warns the Roman Christians and he warns us to be vigilant to have something of a wartime mentality in our thinking. To, he, he warns them to watch out for, to mark and avoid false teachers. To be on guard against their false and dangerous teaching. 
He warns us, as we saw last week, to, to not be deceived by smooth-talking wolves. So he says to us, watch out for deceiving teachers. Mark them. Expose them. Avoid them. Ha- have no fellowship with them. And now he tells us, as he goes on in this other warning, watch out for depraved culture. Look at verse 19. Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice after you. Paul begins in this warning. At the start of this letter, in Romans chapter 1, Paul tells them this in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And so he opens the letter, and now at the close of the letter, he commends them because he says, your obedience is known to all. What a testimony. As a pastor, I was looking at that this morning and said, what better thing could could be said of our church than that? That your obedience is known to all. Your faith is proclaimed in all the earth. And so Paul says, I rejoice after you, over you. This is a good church. This church to whom he writes. It's a healthy church. It's an obedient church. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that the devil hates a healthy church. He, he finds any way he can to, to wage relentless attacks against it. If you, you find any healthy, good, strong, pure, godly church, you will find a massive attack against that church going on in our world. On top of of the devil's attacks against the church, Paul's writing to these believers who are living in Rome. They are living in the vanity fair of vanity fairs. It is an exceedingly wicked city. So he says to them in verse 19, after he says that he thanks, he rejoices over them, he says, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise as to what is good. Wise is to be learned, to be skillful in what is good. James chapter 3, verse 17, James says, The wisdom from above is pure and then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James contrasts this godly wisdom, this wisdom in what is good, with the wisdom of the world, which James says in in verse 15 of chapter 3, is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Worldly wisdom, James says, produces bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, and falsehood, but godly wisdom produces just the opposite. So Paul says, I want you to be wise as to what is good, what is godly. Wisdom throughout Scripture is... Practical mastery in life and conduct. It's not just the knowledge of truth. It's not just the accumulation of information and knowledge. It is truth lived out. It is knowledge put into practice. Wisdom handles situations of life with prudence and dignity. It deals rightly with others. It knows how to truly live. Biblical wisdom recognizes the sovereignty of God. It understands God's word and it applies God's word. And in fact, this is the very starting point of wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read the same thing from from David. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of those who practice it have good 
understanding. So wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. We can't even begin to know, as Paul says, be wise as to what is good, be innocent as to what is evil. We can't even begin to know what is good and what is evil apart from the knowledge of God that he has given to us in his word. And so the outer walk of wisdom begins with the inner relationship with God's wisdom through his word. That's why Paul told us what he told us in chapter 12 of Romans when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect. The world is is constantly trying to squeeze us into a mold. Constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold, to be in its shape, to look like it looks. Paul says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. We are, are warned because we live in a world that is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. Paul says, be wise. Be skillful. Be studied. Be passionate about what is good. In other words, about that which pertains to godliness. Know the difference between good and evil and commit yourself. Give yourself wholly over to the good. Be wise about that which is good. And then he says, be innocent as to what is evil. This word innocent means to be unmixed. Clean. Wholesome. Unaffected. Unaffected. It's actually related to the word naive. Last week, Paul used this word naive, and he says the naive are the ones who are deceived by false teachers. But now he says, in essence, there's one thing you can be a kind of naive about. You should be innocent. You should be totally untainted by what is evil. Now, that doesn't mean that we go through life oblivious to the evils around us. Naive has that connotation, doesn't it? Like you're just clueless. You're just oblivious. You'll fall for anything. That is the opposite of what Paul is saying here. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12, Paul speaks of being not outwitted by Satan, of not being ignorant of his devices. And so we are not talking about being undiscerning here. We are not talking about burying our heads in the sand and just going, it's an evil world out there. I can't know anything about it at all. Certainly, I think many Christians raise their children to be so unaware of the evils in the world that the instant they step out of their household, they are completely scandalized by the world they see around them, and not in a good way. They are totally unprepared for what is going on in the world around them. Paul's not advocating that. He's not saying bury your head in the sand. But he is saying something very important. He's instructing us not to be tainted by evil. Not to become acclimated to it. Not to get used to it. So as much as there's a danger in parents not not preparing their kids to understand the, the dark world in which they live in, there is another danger on the other side of that road where we allow our children to be acclimated and tainted by the evil around them such that they're not even shocked by the wickedness of the world anymore. It's just life. What's the big deal? Well, these Roman Christians are living in an incredibly dangerous environment. Seneca, the first century historian, called it a cesspool of iniquity. 
Paul is writing to Christians living in a cesspool of iniquity. The immorality among the upper classes was rampant and vile. Homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, even bestiality were acceptable, acceptable moral behaviors. In fact, many of the Roman philosophers openly mocked monogamous heterosexual couples. It's just a thing to laugh at. Increasing number of children, mostly girls, were abandoned by parents who did not want them. And so child abuse and child prostitution proliferated in that society. Life was cheap. In Paul's day, poorer classes attempted to form labor unions, not for better pay, not for better working conditions, but for the simple right to be buried like a human being. Animals were more protected and better treated than humans. Not so different than our world, by the way, where you can't destroy a, an eagle's egg legally, but you can murder a child in his mother's womb. And that is both protected by law and celebrated by millions. The, the truth is, our culture is just like the Roman culture. What, what better description is there of our nation than those words of that Roman historian Seneca. We are a cesspool of iniquity. And if anything, the wickedness of this world reaches farther. It reaches deeper into our lives. It is not just outside of our doors in our society. It is inside our homes. It is on our TVs. It is on our computers. It is on our phones. It is coming from our car stereos. It surrounds our children in their schools. It is inescapable in Walmart checkout lines. It's ubiquitous in our culture. We cannot escape this cesspool of iniquity. We live right in the middle of Vanity Fair, and it is mortally dangerous. And if we're not careful if we are not vigilant, if we are not wise, if we forget that we are in a war, if we forget that we have a real enemy who is relentlessly looking for opportunity to murder us, before long, that narrow, rugged path to the celestial city will begin to feel to us dull and boring and harsh and stifling, and we will decide life is better here in Vanity Fair. There is a real danger. There is a clear and present danger. Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us here with this warning going, it's bleak, it's dark, you got to be on edge all the time. No, he doesn't leave us saying, now it's all on you. Even as he calls us to do hard work, even as he calls us to do the hard work of cultivating Wisdom of the good, cultivating innocence of the evil. Even as we must be wise and on guard because of our enemy, Paul makes this glorious statement in verse 20. Look at these beautiful words. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. John Murray says this in his commentary. God will crush Satan... He will crush him under the feet of the faithful, and he will do it soon. The promise of victory undergirds the fight of faith. That is good news, brothers and sisters. 
as we look at this world that we live in, at the battle that we have been called to, to know that the promise of victory is the solid ground beneath our feet that we are standing upon. Today, when people talk about the God of the Bible, when they think about the God who they are willing to worship, they are ready to believe in a God who is a God of love. They are ready to believe in a God who is a God of peace. They are ready and willing to accept God so long as he is a pacifist. We'll take that God. So long as he doesn't have any absolute standards. So long as he doesn't make any judgments. This, this is the God of liberal theology. Who, who never sends anyone to hell. Whose job it is to forgive everyone. This God who is for inclusion and not exclusion. This God who is only for mercy and never for justice. A God who never has wrath. A God who is never angry. But that is not the God of the Bible. Not only is it not the God of the Bible, that's not the God who actually exists. That's a God we made up. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 says of the God of the Bible, the God who actually exists, the God who will actually judge. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Literally, angry every day at sin, at sinners. But that's the God of the Old Testament, right? So that's surely not the God of the New Testament. What do we see at the end of the New Testament? Revelation chapter 19, Jesus comes in judgment and crushes his enemies. We read in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In chapter 14 of Revelation, the winepress of God's wrath crushes so many of his enemies that their blood flows as high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles. That's the God revealed to us in Scripture. What does Paul tell us in the first three chapters of, of Romans, of this letter? We are at war with God, and God is at war with us. And there is only one way for this war to end. There is only one way to have peace with God instead of wrath from God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way for this war to end. This is the only way to have peace with God. All who are in Christ will receive the gift of his righteousness and now have, for the very first time, peace with God. But for those who have not trusted in him, those for whom the payment of sin has not been made, your guilt of sin remains upon you. God's wrath against sin and his wrath against sinners still burns against you. And if you don't belong to Christ, then God is not a God of peace towards you, but a God of war. But he's offering you peace. He's willing to forgive your treason. If you will lay down your arms, if you'll lay your weapons down, if you'll submit to him. But as, as long as you reject his grace and his lordship, there is no peace, only war. 
And when Christ finally judges all of his enemies, you will be among them. What a terrifying thought. Please be reconciled to God. But believers, look, look, look here at how Paul says we'll have victory. God to his people is a God of peace. And he says God will crush Satan under our feet. Think about that. What, what, a, what a shocking turnaround from God being at war with you to the God of peace crushing Satan under your feet. God is not at war with us. He has promised to win the war for us and even through us. And Paul tells the Romans this is going to happen soon. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's not a mistake. Paul's not off by thousands of years here. What does this mean? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, the language should sound very familiar to us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 kind of language. The first gospel proclamation where God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his feet. So just as we speak of our salvation as past, present, and future, you were saved by God at a fixed moment in time. Regeneration occurred. Your dead heart was made to live. Justification occurred. You were pronounced not guilty. You were credited with the righteousness of Christ. Adoption occurred. You were made the son of God. You were filled with the Holy Spirit. You were given the gifts of repentance and faith. That all happened in your past in a fixed moment. But you are also being saved continually. You are being sanctified, transformed in the likeness of your Savior. As you do good works, as you persevere, you are being saved. That salvation is working itself out in your life. And you will be saved finally and completely when Satan and sin and death are finally removed entirely. When you are swept into the very presence of God and the new creation in glory. We sing about that. We sing of our longing for that day of final and complete and full consummation of our salvation. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. It's the hope of the Christian. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Our salvation at the moment of our regeneration, at the moment of our conversion, was real and secure from the very moment of our justification. But it is not completed and consummated all at once. Well, in the same way, Satan was defeated in reality. But that victory over him, God's crushing of Satan's head will come in three Stages. He has been defeated. He is being defeated. He will be defeated. Now the first and the last of these victories in the past and in the future belong exclusively to Christ. We play no part whatsoever. He alone disarmed the power of Satan in his death on the cross. We did not help him with that. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He himself likewise took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, so Satan is decisively defeated on the cross of Christ. That's the first. And then the last, Christ alone will destroy Satan once and for all at the end of the age. Judge him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, where he will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But it's the second of these three stages. It's the right now stage where we actually play a role. And again, it's not that we do it. It's that God does it. He, the God of peace, will crush Satan under your feet soon. He crushes Satan under our feet. How does he do it, though? What's our role in that? Well, again, we're using Genesis 3 language here. We're making an allusion to Genesis chapter 3. What happened in Genesis 3? How did the serpent, how did Satan deceive the man and the woman in the garden? He offered them the knowledge of good and evil. He undermined the very word and command of God. And he said to them, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. It wasn't sinful for them to desire to know good and evil. Paul commands us here to be wise as to what is good, to be innocent as to what is evil. We need to know the difference between those things. Their sin was that they desired a knowledge that was contrary to God's revelation. God had told them in no uncertain terms, do not eat. God defines what is good and what is evil. And he had defined for them in their world what was good and what was evil. What was good was fill the earth and subdue it. What was evil was don't eat this tree. I've given you everything else. They sought a secret knowledge. They sought a secret knowledge God had not revealed to them, one that was contrary to the word of God. Look back here now at at Romans 16. What does Paul say in verse 19? Your obedience is known to all, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. How is it then that we conquer in this present age? How is it that we survive Vanity Fair? How is it that the God of peace crushes Satan under our feet? Well, it's not by us taking up a sword. It is not by physical force. It is not by us becoming like the culture to hopefully win them over because they'll think we're cool like they are. It's by devotion to the truth of God. Knowing it. Obeying it, loving it, proclaiming it. This is where the first Adam failed in the, in the garden. When that certain serpent came, 
offering him a knowledge of good and evil that did not come from the Lord, offering him this, this outside external knowledge when that serpent came, undermining God's word, twisting God's word, he should have put his heel right on his skull and crushed it into the dust. He was given authority to rule over the garden. He was given a commission to fill the earth and subdue the earth. And he failed in his commission. But though the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, succeeded. He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. And now he has taken his authority and commissioned us. All authority, Jesus says, belongs to him. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given us the command and he has given us the authority to go and preach the gospel of his kingdom as his representatives. We've spoke numerous times in the book of Romans of what a herald was. The herald was the one under the authority of the king to take the message of the king and proclaim the, the king's message. He, he was declaring an authoritative word about the kingdom from the king of the kingdom. And God has commanded us and given us the authority to do this. So when we are wise as to what is good, when we are innocent as to what is evil, when we take this gospel of Christ's supremacy and rule, when we take the good news of the kingdom of God, and when we take the mandate of God's kingdom that every knee should bow before the king, that every tongue should confess his lordship to the glory of God, when we keep out falsehood, when we guard against false teachers who seek to pervert and twist the true gospel, who, like Satan, are offering a knowledge contrary to God's good revelation in Scripture, when we commit ourselves to rightly proclaiming the true gospel as God's heralds who don't get to make the message up, but are commanded to, to faithfully proclaim that message which we have been given. When we sacrificially pour out our lives for the glory of God, when we do these things, our already defeated foe, our already crushed enemy is further crushed by God underneath our feet. Revelation 12 verse 11 tells us how the saints overcame Satan says this, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even unto death. The blood of the Lamb, the cross of Christ, conquered Satan. And our testimony, our preaching of the gospel, our lives laid down are conquering him even now. And he's even conquered in our death because he can't snatch us from Christ's hands. We are in Christ. Death only takes us into his presence where we will live in resurrection glory forever. And so, so it is in all of this, it is in our obedience to Christ, it is in our faithfulness to his word, even as that means we are 
marking and avoiding standing against false teaching while proclaiming the true gospel of Christ as we are pouring our lives out as ambassadors and heralds of the king's message, this good news to this world. Satan, who is a conquered foe, is being further ground into the dust. What a glorious thought that is. The victory is guaranteed. We have been placed in the middle of a war. And victory is guaranteed. But the fight is bloody. And the fight is terrible. And Vanity Fair, where we live now, is dangerous. It is a deceptive place. But friends, we are traveling to the celestial city. This is not... Our final home. Our God who upholds us will see that we get there. Singing that other great hymn of the church, through this vain world he guides our feet and leads us to his heavenly seat. He will see that we make it. He will, victory is guaranteed, but we are in a war. And in this world we will have trouble, but, but Christ has overcome the world. We are more than conquerors in him. And all of Christ's enemies have received their death blow already. It's all over. It's all over but the mopping it up. They're in their final death throes. And yeah, like an injured bear, enemies in their final death throes can be dangerous. But it's just our job to be faithful. It's just our job to be faithful until this victory is fully consummated. And friends, we have full assurance that it will be. It will be. And as Paul says in verse 20 here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. What more could we need? What more could we need than this? So even in this warning that Paul gives us, warning we must heed, of this world in which we live, of this war that we have been called into, we have full assurance of this grace in which we stand that will ever be present with us and of the assured victory of Christ because Christ has already won. He's already ruling and reigning right now in victory and in glory. And he has given us for some reason known only to him in his grace, not only to, to make us his sons and his daughters, but to allow us to be his ambassadors in this world. What a, what a glorious thing that is. What a kindness from God to us. So may we, church, stand in faith in this dark world for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we take such confidence. We take such confidence from these, these incredible statements that you have made in your word, Lord, of, of the completeness of the rule and the reign and, and glory and might of Christ. We rejoice in the mercy that we have been shown, mercy undeserved. We pray, Lord, for those living in this world of darkness and sin, those who are at this moment in rebellion against you, that they would turn from their enmity, that they would turn from their rage, that they would lay down their arms and bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ, submit their lives to this gracious, loving King.
king and find in him salvation. Find in him freedom from condemnation. Find in him joy eternal. Find in him the hope of the promise of that celestial city to which we have been called to live forever in your presence. We pray, Lord, for ourselves that you would make us faithful to that which you have called us, faithful heralds of this true gospel, faithful ambassadors of this kingdom, faithful even to lay our lives down for our king and his kingdom, knowing, Lord, that that which you have prepared for those who love you, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived. And yet by your spirit you have revealed them to us that Lord, even in that little amount that we understand of what you have done for us in your grace and saving us, in your promise to surely return for us, and in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, we have ample reason to rejoice and to be steadfast, to be filled with hope. And so I pray, God, that you would do that work in us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.